This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Evidence for Faith radio show. We are the voice of Rashio Christi. This is the show where we help you learn how to live a happy life, where we talk about the ideas and the philosophy that leads to a fulfilled, abundant life. I'm Keith Kendricks, and with me, Jennifer Quinn and Kevin Harrow. And today's topic is going to be evolution. Once again, we'll be talking about evolution. We have a lot of exciting news items to cover today. But also, do check us out at our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And check out our Facebook page, too. If you are into podcasts, you can listen to the podcasts we do at iTunes. Also, we want you to check out the ratiochristi.org website. Well, we always start out the show by doing a quote, and we're doing a series of quotations from C.S. Lewis because we can. So here's another one from C.S. Lewis. This one's a short, pithy one. He says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. So great quote about courage from C.S. Lewis. Well, guys, we have a couple news items to go over to begin with, and I just want to point out that on the Facebook page, I posted a video about DOMA, the Defensive Marriage Act. It's a great video on marriage that I posted, and the reason that is pertinent to a show like ours is because we talk about the benefits of Christianity, and Christianity supports the concept of marriage, and marriage supports civilization. So, at its most basic form. Uh, So, that's why we have DOMA, and that's why this news item is appropriate. This is from the Heritage Foundation. It's titled, Marriage, the Greatest Weapon Against Childhood Poverty. And that makes me think about the verse in the Bible that says that uh, the, the gospel will be good news for the poor. And History has proven that to be true, that where the gospel has succeeded in civilizations, the poor have been lifted up. Um, The Christian worldview is very beneficial to the poor, and this research project by the Heritage Foundation shows the same thing. Here's some quotations from it. Nearly three out of four poor families with children in America are headed by single parents. When a child's father is married to his mother, however— the probability of the child's living in poverty drops by 82%. And this is uh, put forward by senior research fellow Robert Rector. So here's a quotation from him. He says, policymakers on the state and national levels recognize that education reduces poverty, but they're largely unaware that marriage is an equally strong anti-poverty weapon. So that's from uh, from Rector. Now, and just by the sounds of it, I'd actually uh, think that that is actually more powerful 
uh, weapon against poverty um, because I don't know any studies that show that education reduces poverty by 82%, whereas marriage does. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple more quotations from the study here. It says, well over a third of all single-parent families with children, and th- so that's 37%, over a third, were poor in 2009, whereas only 7% of married couples with children were poor. Uh, marriage reduces the prob- probability of poverty. And then the uh, final bit here says, Rector finds a silver lining. Most unmarried moms and dads, too, do look favorably on marriage. So even though they're single, raising children, they consider marriage favorably. So the argument is that new policies should be developed to build on those attitudes. And then he gives specific three things that government can do. Number one, provide facts to at-risk youth about the value of marriage. Number two, correct low-income, I'm sorry, connect low-income couples with community resources that teach them the skills they need to build lasting marriages before having children. And three, reform the welfare system to encourage rather than discourage and penalize marriage. So that is from the Heritage Foundation. Any comments, guys, on that or the video that I posted on the Facebook page? I guess my concern would be, Keith, uh, what you're not saying. You're not standing in judgment over single parents saying that they're wrong in the sense of uh, every single parent is a wrong person. But you're saying it's a much more of a benefit to society, and to the children if there is the stability of marriage. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't want to give the impression that we are opposed to single parents in the sense that um, we think that they're all bad. So we just think it's not the ideal situation. And so it behooves us to promote the ideal situation. Now, I have a friend, not long ago, his wife walked out on him. So he's stuck as a single parent now. Is that ideal? No, it's not. Did he have a choice about it? No, he didn't. If you do have a choice about it, please think again, right? It's not good for your children. Uh, Another news item that came up, this is really interesting. Uh, This comes along every once in a while. You get an atheist who's honest. So this is from an atheist psychologist. His name is Jesse Baring. And uh, he did an article in Salon Magazine called Don't Trust the Godless. So he admits that as an atheist, he trusts religious people more than atheist people. And he says that's because of the science. The science? Yeah. Why is that? The psychological studies that have been done of people to see whether they're trustworthy or not. So he says that religion functions to stem the selfish behaviors of individuals and it helps sustain social harmony. Now, this reminded me of a previous article by a different atheist that was on the Times of the UK, and it was Matthew Paris, and he had an article called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And he was somebody who had grown up coming and going from Africa, so he was very familiar with it. And he said, honestly, people there need the morals that Christianity provides, and they need the economic system that Christianity provides for to lift the poor out of poverty in Africa. So he was being brutally honest. It didn't fit with his own religious beliefs of atheism, but he just knew that Christianity has a better way and people needed it. 
So uh, likewise, uh, Jesse Baring is saying uh, the same thing, and he quotes research by Ara Norenzayan, who we have referenced in the past, and he says, thinking about religion, quote, it's more cognizant and concerned about the transparencies of their social behavior. So people that are thinking about religion, right, people who are religious and believe it, are more cognizant and concerned about the transparency of their social uh, behaviors. So when they do things, they think about what it would look like if I, like, what would it be for me to mistreat you, right? How would other people feel? Uh, what would God think about it? Religious people think about these things. So uh, he, he continues that um, believers are more likely to give to charity, particularly on Sunday, he mentions, and that's because of this triggering mechanism that psychologists have found that um, if you are exposed to religious talk and you are a believer, it helps you to be- behave better. Okay, so and to me that is just good encouragement to talk, you know, to to study the Bible every day. And that's the the findings, like the science behind it, is interesting because it goes directly um, opposed to the comments we heard when we went to the atheist reason rally a little while ago with Ratio Christie. Because the atheists there, they would hold up signs and they would say atheists are actually more moral because they're doing it out of the kindness of their own heart. They're not doing it because they're getting it a reward in heaven. Like we're doing it just to be kind. You're doing it for an ulterior motive. So yeah, exactly right. And so their posters that they were carrying around saying good without. God, yeah. it turns out that that's not true. Mm-hmm. So then uh, one final quote, he says, um, religious cues prompt neighborly decisions and curb social transgressions. So that's something to encourage believers. And if you are thinking about becoming a Christian, I hope that that is confirmation to you that you really ought to become a Christian. If you would like, if you care about the poor, you want to lift them up. If you care about morals and doing the right thing, you ought to become a Christian. Now, let me just, I pulled out that old talk we did from Ara Norenzayan. She's a psychologist from uh, British Columbia because that was an important study about why people are atheists. And what she showed is that one of the reasons people are atheists is because of poor mental development. So poor brain development, poor neurological development. And it's related to the same processes that happen to autistic children. So her her paper that we talked about a couple of uh, weeks back, if you want to go back on the podcast, uh, it was called Mentalizing Deficits, Constrained Belief in a Personal God. Um, so she says, of course, this is not related to IQ. It's related to a specific way that the brain wires itself during development to be able to detect other minds. So if you are unable, if you have difficulty understanding other people, thinking about, you know, like how well they, she tested um, people for like how well they could tell what somebody's emotional state was, right? By looking at their face, could you tell what kind of a mood they were in? And if you if your brain didn't develop well enough for you to be able to tell that, you're going to have a lot of problems uh, recognizing another mind out there, God, a personal God who's out there. So very interesting, but we won't go, we won't repeat all that. So Keith, you said these were the result of studies that were conducted. They're not just somebody's opinion they slapped down on That's the right. paper. Yep. They almost could say that they were Maybe even scientific studies that were... No, not maybe. They were scientific studies, yeah. So, peer-reviewed. Um, in fact, the, the 
that particular study was actually a review of four previous studies um, with additional work uh, done also. So, so there was a scientific method that it was adhered to in this. Absolutely. Yeah, science is the friend of Christianity. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the interesting news item everybody's been talking about online and socially. Somebody claims that's not true. Bill Nye, the science guy, says actually that what he calls creationism, which I, you know, you have to kind of play with the words a little bit. It's not exactly clear since he didn't define anything that he was saying, uh, is the enemy of science and evolution. Kevin, maybe you can uh, fill us in a little bit more on that. For what I understand, he's been quite a bit on the news. I did have the chance to review some articles and to listen to his very words himself uh, to see what he was saying. Yeah, he did a like a video clip, right? A video I, I clip. Saw, I saw yes. one on YouTube that people can look up if they haven't seen it, but it said that it had, had 4 million views. So it's mm. a lot of people. Everyone's sharing it on Facebook. That's why <laughs> so many views. Mm. So he made uh, some claims. He made some statements. And we're going to real quickly talk about these and uh, look at them to see if they are valid. Yeah, one of the main, I guess the main things he was saying, the one thing that struck me the most is when he said, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it. And I think that was like the heart of what he was saying was, don't teach creationism to your kids. Yeah, why do you think he was saying that? Uh, when I looked at this, what struck me was the phrase, everything we observed, out of what he was saying. Right. <laughs> and to me, that's empiricism stepping on materialism in order to reach scientism. <laughs> and that was a whole bunch of big words. But uh, real quickly, try to break it down. Basically, in the scientific method that we just talked about a little well earlier, uh, according to McDowell and Hostetter, uh, there is a process where we record an event in a controlled environment, we observe the event, and we record it. Right. And then, only then, do we postulate a conclusion. So there's a repeating, observing, and recording. This is called the scientific method. But this assumes a couple things. And one of the things it assumes is that the only things true in this world are the things that can be seen, tasted, smelled. So Yeah, if science is going to be the source of all information, then obviously that's what you'd have to do. Right. I might even add the word only the source of information. And sometimes I believe that people misunderstand when we say science that we're really only saying the scientific method, and that's the only acceptable way to discover truth. And I think this is the heart of what he's saying. But in rebuttal, I would then ask, how then can you know if you love someone or they love you? Or more pointedly, how do you know if Abraham Lincoln ever existed? Right. You can't experiment on him, right? You can't experiment. Dig him up, I guess. And uh, someone this morning brought up, uh, what about the Big Bang? And that could go all into that. We won't go down that rabbit trail. But how can you know if Abraham Lincoln or, let's say, as theologians, the resurrection of Christ happened if you try to use the scientific method? You can't. Right. But 
who is going to doubt that Abraham Lincoln existed and he did things? So you have to use what's called the evidential method, where you look at documentation, you look at past events, you looked at eyewitnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So which is not really the scientific method. You're talking about a different discipline where you look into things in the past. That's correct. And I would even say that if I say science is the only way to discover truth, that's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement. Right. Now, to be clear, though, he didn't actually say that science is the only way to know truth. You're correct. Thank right. you for correcting me, Keith. So you are correct. <laughs> I'm not correcting you. I'm no, that's just, a true statement. He did not say that in so many yeah, words. Right, yeah. You're just saying that this is his background view, and this is why he gets things wrong. Correct. But if you're saying you can believe it, but don't teach it to the next generation, that's making a profound exclusionary statement. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I, uh, I liken it to uh, intellectual snobbery. Right? How dare you teach your children what I disagree with? Right? Correct. That's child abuse if you do that. It's a, you know, there, there used to be um, a lot of give and take for you know, both sides of the argument. But now since 9-11 with the neo-atheists, um, they're playing hardball. And you know, they don't care about the rules of open-mindedness and maybe I'm wrong. They're certain that they're right, and so they're going to enforce their certainty on others, including calling what you're doing, uh, raising your children in the beliefs you do, as child abuse. So, now again, he didn't specifically say it was child abuse, but he certainly did lean that way. And he uses absolute statements, like he Mm -hmm. says that all scientists believe in evolution, so if you don't want to, you can go over there in your little bubble, the rest of the world will believe in evolution, which is a blatant lie, because there's a large portion of the scientific community that are intelligent design scientists, and just seeing the complexities of life, that it doesn't line up with it. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rashio Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. Kevin Harrell. And we're talking about evolution. If you'd like to join in the conversation and you live in southern New Jersey, you can call us at 609-398-1020. All right, so what else did he say? Uh, Something that goes right along with Jenda said, he said that when you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in evolution, it holds everybody back. (laughs) And I think this goes right along with another one of his comments is that, like you said, Jen, denial of evolution is unique to the United States. He's saying that it's only in the United States where we deny evolution and by implication, he's saying promote creationism. And I would say, basically, when does the truthfulness of something depend upon its popularity? Right, exactly. This this is a logical fallacy. So it's called odd populum, appealing to the popularity of an idea, therefore it must be true. And of course, I hope that anybody with any idea of the history of science knows that that is not true. Um, Many of the things that we know to be true today were very unpopular, uh, including one of the things he mentions, but we can talk about that when we get to it. But I think this is, you know, just highlights the importance of critical thinking skills. And we have to teach our children critical thinking skills because guys like this will get on to YouTube with their bow ties and claim a bunch of stuff that sounds true, 
But unless you know logic, you know some of the logical fallacies, you're not going to see where they're making their mistakes. So that argument, it just gets blown right out because it's an odd populum argument. Therefore, you should completely discount it. Uh, you know, this is what I think the Bible talks about this too, not being tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine, right? You have to use your rational skills. Uh, the Bible sa- talks about not being caught up in bad philosophy. Well, how are you going to avoid getting caught up from bad philosophy unless you know good philosophy? You have to know logic. You have to know philosophy. You have to know how to think clearly in order to avoid the kind of things that this, this guy is saying. I think an important example of that we could pull from history where a scientist asserted something initially in the beginning and he was met with resistance. I'm sure you all are knowing what I'm going to say next, right? Which person in history is often misquoted? Could it be Galileo? Galileo, because the myth is, oh, use that myth word. The myth is that it was Galileo against the the church. The church, right. in actuality, Galileo met the strongest opposition, yes, from the church, but more from his own scientific community, his own peers in science, who right. initially did not agree with him, and thus, since his theory was not popular, therefore, by Nye's reasoning, we must all still believe that the earth is in the center of the universe, location-wise. So, I think that shows that that popularity thing is not a proof of validity. And it's exactly that other side of the scientific community today, the intelligent design movement that isn't allowed in the classroom. And that's what bothered me the most about what he was saying, because I watched the video first of Bill Nye when someone posted on my Facebook. So we got into a conversation a little bit going back and forth. And I said, I agree that only science should be taught in a science classroom. The problem is that the whole story isn't being given in science. Both sides aren't, just like if you're in a court case, like if you hear, you have to hear the prosecution and the defense and allow the kids to critically think for themselves what makes more sense like what's the evidence for evolution what where is current science pointing us but the problem is that that's not allowed in the classroom and so right jen so are you saying that intelligence design is science or it's only religion it's science. It's pure science. And that's exactly what they were saying, too. They were like, that's religion and that should be kept at home, just like Buddhism shouldn't be taught their view of science in the class. I was like, what? I'm just saying that, like, not even Genesis. Don't, you don't even have to get into Adam and Eve. Just saying, like, look, like, we're seeing information, like, on the molecular level. That, that ha- information has to come from a mind. There has to be a designer behind that. Right. So, uh, well, how about the idea of continental drift? Now, he actually mentioned that in the video. He said that continental, if you don't believe in continental drift, you're going to get your geology wrong. Well, the problem is that the theorist who came up with continental drift was completely re- rebuffed by the scientific community. It took almost 60 years for the concept to be adopted by the scientific community because they rejected it. So he was not allowed to publish. He was rejected from peer-reviewed publication. Uh, he was criticized. Uh, he was belittled publicly for his views. And 60 years later, it's the dominant view. So Bill Nye just doesn't know what he's talking about. He uses such a bad example. He uses continental drift as an example of how you get things wrong unless you believe it. Well, nobody believed that, you know. So we're in the same position now. 
People believe in evolution, and by that they mean microevolution. They mean small changes can lead to big changes. Well, that's being disproven right and left. And we've got some more articles about that today, so we'll get to more of that. But, you know, it just shows that his, his own argument worked against him. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Well, the second to last thing uh, we can bring up about Nye's comments, he said that from about promoting the idea of teaching children the building blocks of science and how this is essential for the country's future. Yes, I agree. He said we need them. Uh, I'm assuming referring to children who are taught the building blocks of science. We need them scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need engineers that can build stuff and solve problems. And this, in a way, is a good statement. We do need that. But in the context of what he was saying, I believe what he was bringing up was a false uh, dilemma in that he was assuming from the future that if it's of a scientific origin, then it's assumed to be correct. But if it's of a religious aspect, then it should automatically be assumed to be questioned. Right. But the false dilemma part is, is he saying that it's either or, either science or religion. And I think he misses an entire part of history by not saying that there can be parts of both, as in there's been many a scientist who is a very dedicated Christian. So they were scientists who were Christians. Right, including most of the founders of each of the scientific divisions. So, I mean, you know, how does he think we got where we are today? He says the United States is like the technologically the most advanced. And yet he also says that the United States is the only place in the world where people still believe in creationism. Well, duh, maybe the two go together. You know, how does he think we got to where we are? According to him, we would have never become the most advanced society, right? Because we are too religious. We believe in creationism. That's a science stopper, right? But yes. In fact, the opposite is true. So, uh, you know, uh, he, he doesn't, it, you know, what's funny is when you watch his video, here's a guy talking about an issue where he obviously doesn't know the issue very well. I mean, he doesn't know the arguments on either side really well. He doesn't give any evidences himself. So he doesn't give any arguments on his side. He just, you know, proclaims a lot of stuff, makes a lot of bald assertions. And then he doesn't address any of the evidence on the other side. So, in fact, the case is that evolution is a science stopper and intelligent design has been on the leading edge of new discoveries. So including the high-speed turbines that are in each living cell uh, that pull chromosomes apart. And I think we're going to get to a paper on chromosomes uh, also. Right, because the last, one of the last things, not the last thing he said, but the last thing I'm going to say he said is his one comment when he talks about creation, because he said a lot of things. He said there is no evidence for it. There is no (laughs) evidence for it. And I think that leads right into some of the other things we're going to talk about, as in whether there's evidence. But before I let that horse out of the barn, I was thinking, I would just like to throw in a recommendation. If you believe there is no evidence for, um, excuse me, no evidence for creation, I'm not using the word creationism, but for creation, 
Might I recommend uh, Stephen Meyer has a book called Signature in the Cell, mm -hmm. or Jonathan Wells has a book called The Icons of Evolution. And I think both of those books are written by very educated and knowledgeable men, and uh, you would do well to get them and read them if you agree with Nye in that there's no evidence for creation. And also listen to the podcast where we interviewed Stephen Meyer about his book, Signature in the Cell. Well, so what, what are one of the ways in which evolution is a science stopper? I mean, that was a big, bold claim that I made. There are actually lots of ways. I mean, evolution has been one of the largest stoppers of science that has happened in the past uh, 150 years. Think about things like vestigial organs, right? I mean, scientists never paid any attention to vestigial organs because they were thought to be evolutionary holdovers. So things like the thymus gland, I mean, surgeons used to just snip it off when they were doing surgery on the brain because they knew it was just a vestigial organ, right? It was just junk left over from the evolutionary process. They never bothered to study it. And now we know that virtually every vestigial organ actually has a purpose, including the appendix. So the idea that there are vestigial organs is ridiculous. It's possible, of course, that organs can become damaged genetically and dysfunctional and can be left over like we have fish in caves where there's no light and they have vestigial eyes, right? They're eyes that don't see, they're blind eyes. Yet they're not weeded out because it doesn't matter to the survival of the fish, whether he has eyes or not. Um, and there's actually a slight a slight decline due, uh, due to the fact that the eye can still get infected. So uh, the fish that are born with no eyes at all actually have a little bit of a survival benefit over those that are born with the blind eyes. But regardless of that, uh, the only kind of vestigial organs you can get are ones that have failed. So that, of course, isn't evolution, right? That's not progress. That's regress. So another area that evolution has stopped science was in the field of junk DNA, right? Who wants to study junk? Well, nobody does. So when the one of the predictions of evolution is that the DNA would be littered with junk from failed efforts to create new information because the mutations are just random, right? So you're going to have, you know, 99.9% .9 of all the mutations are going to be useless, the DNA will be littered with junk DNA. So when scientists found that a bunch of the DNA did not actually code for the making of proteins, they labeled it junk DNA and threw it aside. You're not saying it's DNA that's stacked in the corner behind a fence and has pit bulls guarding it, right? You mean junk DNA means something else. Yeah, DNA that does not code for protein, okay? That was labeled junk. Because, number one, evolution predicted there would be such things there. So this was a prediction of evolution. That has now been falsified. And there's a great New York Times article that Jens uh, got. Yeah, it was a recent New York Times article. It was published on September 5th. And it's by Gina Koladitz, entitled Bits of Mystery DNA, Far From Junk, Play a Crucial Role. So a bunch of 440 scientists got together from 32 laboratories around the world. And they're finding that this, um, that this 
so-called junk DNA that evolutionary scientists thought it was, that it had no purpose and was just left over from from millions of years of evolution, they're finding that it's actually packed with at least 4 million gene switches that reside in the bits of these junk DNA. And it turns out that they play critical roles in controlling how cells, organs, and other tissues behave. And um, So this is like the regulatory... Uh, control. So things that are switches that will turn the genes that actually do produce proteins, it turns them on and off, right? Right. It, they described it as a system of switches that act kind of like dimmer switches for lights. It controls which genes are used in the cell and when they are used and determine, for instance, whether a cell becomes a liver cell or a neuron. So they're okay. also finding that this can help with um, with disease research also because it determines that their environmental exposure can slightly alter these gene switches. And um, cool, Dr. Yeah. Lander, um, who was a leader in the Human Genome Project, he he even quoted, "My head explodes at the amount of data that they're finding in this junk DNA." What's neat about this? Uh, think about this as a puzzle for uh, evolution. How is it that the mechanisms that control the DNA, okay, the mechanisms that control the on-off switches of the DNA are themselves coded for in the DNA? How is that, how is it possible that you could create something like that from a random process, right, even given natural selection? It's just too complicated. You would have to be able to see into the future to see what you needed to build in order to control the DNA. I mean, and there, there's no starting point. Where, how do you start? You have to have the entire DNA altogether because it creates the control mechanisms for the DNA itself. Exactly. And um, they're finding that in one of, um, this was published in six papers in the journal Nature, and they're finding that um, researchers are linking the gene switches to a range of human diseases such as multiple sclerosis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, and even traits like height. So they're finding that uh, minor changes in the human DNA sequences increase the risk that a person will get those diseases. So this is gonna this is an amazing find for research to find um, like cancer research and all types of um, cures that they may be able to find because of this junk DNA now. Right. So now, even though they've known about junk DNA for decades, they never studied it. Why? Because evolution told them it was mm-hmm. worthless. Right? So it is evolution that is the science stopper. A creationist, an intelligent design scientist who knew that the DNA had been designed would have known that this was all there for a purpose, that this was useful information. Now, sure, some of it could have been broken down, right? Because we know that bodies decay, species will go extinct. And just as you said, Jen, you know, I mean, minor changes in it cause all kinds of disastrous diseases. So we know that that kind of stuff can happen. But you still would be from the starting point of knowing that this has a purpose, it's there for a reason, and you can explore why is this here, not just shuffle it off as, uh, you know, junk to be uh, discarded and not to be looked at scientifically. I'm curious to see how evolutionary scientists are going to fit this in because for years they thought that junk DNA was evidence for evolution, that it was all this byproduct left over. So now I wonder what their argument is going to be, how that's going to... Right, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, one of the big things about how you tell 
when a hypothesis is true is can it make accurate predictions? Mm. Well, one of the predictions of evolution was that uh, there would be all this junk DNA, this stuff that doesn't work in the DNA, and that's been proven false. So that is evidence against the idea of macroevolution. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. Kevin Harrell. And we're talking about evolution. Jen, any more about that New York Times article, some quotes that we can talk about? Well, Eric Lander, president of one of the institutes that was doing some of the research, he described it. It's like looking at Google Maps, he said, just because of all the complexities that they're finding in it. He said it's like getting a picture of Earth from space. It doesn't tell you where the roads are. It doesn't tell you what traffic is like at what time of the day. It doesn't tell you where the good restaurants are or the hospitals or the cities or the rivers. But you're able to see a whole map of, of it. I saw a, a quote from the article where the guy described the complexity of what they were discovering is like looking at the back of a cabinet of electronics. You know how you'll have a, a rack of stereo equipment or computers. And then you look at the back to see how everything is wired together. And he said it looked like a hairball. It's that complex. Wow. So, uh, so it's just an amazing thing. What struck me uh, more philosophically, so was, I remember what Paul Copen was talking about assumptions. Because I think there is a common misperception that science is completely and absolutely objective and never biased. And while as theology is always biased, but right there, Kate, you were talking about how an evolutionist would make the assumption before starting his study that junk DNA is no good, so he's not even going to look at it. Exactly. Whereas intelligent design scientists would make the assumption from the beginning that it has meaning and purpose, and therefore he would investigate it. That's right, so, because they believe that design is not an illusion. Right. When you see uh, this, is one of the things that Richard Dawkins said that biology is the study of things systems that look like they were designed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they, they look like they were designed. And of course, his belief is that they weren't designed. But he's going against all the evidence. All the evidence is that they were designed. When you go with the evidence and you assume that they were designed, guess what? You make a lot of great scientific breakthroughs. So. Now, uh, talking about people like Dawkins and Defenders, there's a, another news item that was there. Unless, Jen, you have any more about that? That's pretty much it. On the it. junk yeah. DNA? Okay. So let's go to this item. This was in Evolution News and Views. Great website. Recommend it. And it's titled, High-Level Defectors from Evolutionary Theory Leave a Top Darwin Defender Feeling, Quote, Disturbed. <laughs> so this is great. This is... Uh, uh, they quote from Jerry Coyne, who's an evolutionist, written a book on evolution as a website, Why Evolution is True. In fact, I think that's the name of this book. And they say that he's troubled by the increasingly unmanageable problem of high-level academic defectors from evolutionary theory. Oh, dear. So they have a quote here. Uh, Coyne says, virtually all the non-creationist opposition to the modern theory of evolution and all of the minimal approbation of Shapiro's views come from molecular biologists. I'm not sure whether there's something about that discipline, and then parentheses, the complexity of molecular mechanisms, question mark. 
that makes people doubt the efficacy of natural selection or whether it's simply that many molecular biologists don't get a good grounding in evolutionary biology, right? So here he is, not a molecular biologist, claiming that molecular biologists aren't trained well in evolution, and that's why they're rejecting evolution. And didn't Darwin make his theory long before the science of microbiology um, Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, plus he ignores the studies that have shown that the more you know about evolution, the less likely you are to believe it. That's, no. I didn't even know about that study. Uh, that is great. Yeah, wow. that's right. It was done, do you, I don't know if you remember back, oh, more, probably more than 10, 15 years ago, there was a big push by the supporters of evolution to t- teach it as a fact, that you had to teach it as a fact. Well, that strategy came out because they had done studies. They knew that there were too many people who didn't believe in evolution. So they did a study to see what about evolution it was that kids didn't know, and then if they would focus on that area of evolution. So they did a study where they tested uh, children on all areas of evolution, and then they asked them, did they believe it or not? Well, guess what the results showed? The more you knew about evolution, the less likely you were to believe it. So that put them to a quandary. What do we tell the teachers to teach them? The more they teach about evolution, the more the kids don't believe it. So they decided, well, let's just teach it that it's a fact. Mm-hmm. So that was where that big push was about 15 years ago to, for all teachers to teach that evolution was a fact. So anyway, so he apparently is ignorant of that study also. But then he continues, the quote continues, And now we learn from another respected philosopher, Jerry Fodder was the first, has come out against neo-Darwinism. To uh, neo-Darwinism too, the distinguished philosopher Thomas Nagel is about to issue Mind and Cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian concept of nature is almost certainly false, close quote. I was just hearing about him, Nagel, like the other day. I heard of him, and I had never heard his name before that he was coming out with this new atheistic book. Yep, that's right. And it's an atheistic book saying that Darwin was wrong. Well, neo-Darwinism is wrong. I didn't know that part. That's Wow, that's pretty cool. Yep, is that great? So here's a, here's a quote from Nagel. He says, I believe the defenders of intelligent design deserve our gratitude for challenging a scientific worldview that owes some of the passion displayed by its inheritance precisely to the fact that it is thought to liberate us from religion. So if he doesn't believe in Neo-Darwin, how did we get here? What is his argument? Well, that's one, of the, yeah, that's one of the quandaries for evolutionists now. They are, being, they are beginning to see the evidence from the intelligent design scientists. They are seeing that Neo-Darwinism does, fails. Uh, so they've been coming up with you know, theories as to what could be. Because they still have to get information coming out of nowhere. That's their mythos. So information can just spontaneously appear by itself. So they have to find some kind of mechanism to get that information there. So that's what they're working on. I'm I'm actually reading a book called Evolution, The View from the 21st Century, where the author tries to address some of these issues and to what actually could be happening. So 
Uh, we'll just have to wait and see that, you know, see, the problem that they have is that they have to come up with a materialistic view because they are dedicated to their religion of naturalism. So there can't be anything supernatural about it. In fact, they even think that's not doing science. Of course, none of the scientists uh, from 100 years ago and prior that uh, set up the scientific method would agree with them. But uh, this is the current view uh, since uh, atheists are in predominance over over science now. So, so anyway, that's the... Uh, yeah, they have their conclusion before they even start examining the evidence because of that preconceived bias. Yep. Coyne is claiming that there's no genuine uh, scientific opposition to, or I guess what they're saying is that in the past, there's been this claim out there, right? In fact, that's one of the evidences for evolution that we talked about last week. One of the claims is that there is no scientific opposition to Darwinian theory, right? Well, that is just now completely shot down. Here we have people in the atheistic community themselves not agreeing with it. That's right. That's right. So some molecular biologists, it says, by their own superior knowledge of the inner workings of life at its most basic levels, are recognizing that the neo-Darwinian paradigm simply doesn't work. It just doesn't produce new information. So, well, let's see. We've got a little bit of time left. So let's jump into one of those evolutionary evidences that we talked about last week. And we're going to continue in this series with going over the evidences that are presented for evolution and debunking them. So one of the evidences was that uh, the DNA supports evolution, okay? And specifically, you'll hear this concept about the chromosome fusing between since we developed from a common ancestor from chimpanzee. Have you heard that? I was just thinking of the movie George of the Jungle. That's, I'm sorry, I just went off. <laughs> Stay focused. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So that's what you were nodding at? (laughs) Well, George of the Jungle might have been the precursor to the chimpanzee and the human. But the argument goes like this. Humans have 23 chromosome pairs, while chimpanzees inherit 24 chromosome pairs from their parents. So what the evolutionists claim is that there has been a chromosome fusion that has occurred, okay? That in the human, the reason we have only 23 is because two of our chromosomes got fused together. And lo and behold, if you look at human chromosome number two, you do see that there is an area that looks like it's been combined from two separate chromosomes. Now, the reason they can tell this is because chromosomes have different parts. And on the ends, they have telomeres. We did an entire episode on telomeres, if you want to look that up on the uh, podcast or the website. And they also have things called centromeres, which are the centers where the chromosomes are joined together. I don't know if people, you know, wish we could show a picture, but um, chromosomes tend to look like little X's or little Y's where they're joined together. And the place where they're joined is called a centromere. So they can see that these little tags are there in a chromosome, number two. There's extra tags that should be on the end. They're in the middle. And there's a place that looks like a centromere that's there. It's not joined in two places, but that centromere has been turned off. So their argument is, and there's a Ken Miller is one of the advocates of this idea. He's an evolutionist. And he says there are only two possible explanations. Either we share a common ancestor 
or the creator made humans with chromosomes which had the appearance of having been fused but really weren't. So we have a creator designer who's kind of like a liar. He makes things look like they fused together when they really didn't. Or we have a common ancestor. Can you see any problems with that argument? Well, maybe it's oh, a false maybe. dichotomy. False dilemma. I think yes. I mentioned that earlier. A false dichotomy. You struck it into two possibilities when there are actually more possibilities. For instance, uh, what about the possibility that humans themselves just had their chromosome fuse? Okay. Right? That would be option three, you're saying. Exactly. So humans don't have to be related to chimpanzees. In fact, think about it. This is one of the evidences that the theory of evolution is non-falsifiable. Because no matter what happens, you can always claim evolution did that. Because think about what if human beings did have 24 pairs of chromosomes and it matches chimpanzees with 24 pairs. What would they say? That's just more evidence. That's right. That's evidence that evolution is true. But now that chimps have 24 and humans have 23, they say, oh, that's evidence for evolution. Just like with the junk DNA, now they're going to be like, now this is evidence for more for evolution. Exactly, because evolution is unfalsifiable. And if, if you have a theory that's unfalsifiable... It, can, it is not a scientific theory, and it will go the way of the dinosaur because theories that are unfalsifiable just don't survive. You can, no matter what happens, you say evolution did that, right? So why are people altruistic? Oh, evolution did that. It helps them survive. Why are people selfish? Oh, evolution did that. It helps them survive, right? You see, evolution can answer anything. Therefore, evolution answers nothing. So, so it's like a sacred cow that can never be questioned, you're saying. That's right. But now, quickly, science we have one minute left. Questioning. I'm yeah, sorry. Exactly. So quickly, they also, here's a, a more arguments against this. Uh, they are also cherry-picking their data because there are actually lots of chromosomal edits in human beings and in chimpanzees. But if you look at the edits in chimpanzees and try to match up with the chromosome edits in humans, they don't match except for this one, right? So here's an edit that happened in human beings that you can sort of see how it might have been something that came from chimpanzees, but that's the only one. Why don't the edits that are in the chimpanzee match the humans, right? Maybe because what really happened is that humans alone had this uh, edit. And uh, the final point is that where did the mechanisms that allowed this editing come from? It appears that chromosome editing is a normal function. There is mechanisms that got rid of the extra centromere. Well, those mechanisms are controlled themselves by the DNA. So the chromosomes have been designed to re-engineer themselves so that we could adapt to our environment. Well, if you, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. I'm Kevin Harold. And please join us again next week for more evidence. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.